1: Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Givan of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today's guest is Mona Siegel. Professor Siegel earned her PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is now my colleague at Sacramento State University. In 2004, she published The Moral Disarmament of France, Education, Pacifism, and Patriotism, 1914-1940 with Cambridge University Press. She has won awards from the Peace History Society and the History of Education Society. And in 2016 and 2018, she received grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities for research on feminist activism and peace negotiations after World War I. She put these awards to good use, and her Peace on Our Terms, The Global Battle for Women's Rights After the First World War, was published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Mona, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you. So let's start off um, by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study the history of the history of peace and also the, for this project, the history of women's activism.
2: Well, there was a lot of serendipity in it, I have to say. And first of all, Mike, thank you so much for uh, for hosting this interview with me. Um, I uh, entered college initially as a business major and uh, thought that I was going to scale the walls of Wall Street or something along those lines, and very quickly realized that wasn't my destiny. But as an undergraduate, I didn't study history. I studied French and international relations, and my big goal was to become the ambassador to France. And unfortunately, nobody told me until late in the game that I probably needed political connections to make that happen. And so instead, Uh, The my vision of the future began to change largely because of a challenge that I was issued by a college roommate who was a women's studies major. And she insisted that no, no matter what the class was before I graduated, I need to take one class in women's studies. And I took her up on that challenge my last year in college and signed up for a class on the history of women's pacifist movements in the United States. And in that class, I was the first time I was asked to descend into an archive at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I was a student. In the bowels of the library, they hold the papers for the oldest women's peace organization in the United States, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And for that class, I was able to delve into those archives, reading 100-year-old letters and minutes from women who were determined to put an end to war um, in the midst of and at the end of World War I. Um, So I began to learn about this topic through their eyes, fell in love with the process of archival research, and became passionate about the topic, um, and eventually entered graduate school and became a historian. So in the end, in my PhD and in much of my early research, I moved away from studying specifically women's movements. Um, But in all of my research, whether it was education or um, organizing, the common threads were internationalism, feminism, pacifism, and anti-imperialism. Those have been the animating ideas that have driven my research all along.
1: Well, that, I mean, that's fascinating. I, I did not know that my colleague was initially a business major and, <laughs> and was on track to be ambassador uh, to France as well. Um, Debatable, the, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, most of your work has uh, graduate work and then uh, the first part of your career was specifically in French history. And now with this book, um, there's this shift to a much more global topic where you bring in the history of women from the United States, China, Egypt, and elsewhere. So how how did you... How did you make the shift from working in French history to doing a world history to globalizing this project?
2: I had been moving slowly, I would say, in that direction in some of the research that immediately preceded this book where I began researching the interaction between Western feminists and particularly Asian feminists in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, My interest was in seeing how it was that this purportedly international movement that was in fact a Western movement for the most part in its early years um, sought to uh, burst those boundaries and solidify bonds across continents. Um, So I was working in that direction. It was also in the midst of that research that this topic, I almost want to say, threw itself at me. Um, so you know, dating back decades now, I had known that there were Western women uh, from that organization, the Wilp, that I mentioned earlier, who had and, been and seeking. And w-
1: just to interrupt, Wilp is the the organization you talked about previously, the it- Women's International League for Peace and Freedom.
2: Exactly. Which we exactly. will refer
1: to as Wilp for.
2: Exactly. Yes. Because it's just That's- it's
1: just fun to say.
2: It is fun to say, right? So, yes, so the WILP is this early organization that I had researched all the way back in my undergraduate days, you know, giving me a glimpse into the idea that women had been, in fact, both active and um, radicalized and laying out demands for what a peaceful world order might look like at the end of World War I. But for all those decades after um, I left my undergraduate work, I assumed that they were an anomaly. I assumed that. They were kind of alone. My history books on World War I and the Paris Peace Conference never talked about them or any other women. And, but it was in the process of looking into interactions between women in the West and the women of the East that I first encountered a woman who ends up playing a big part in my book by the name of Sume Chung. Mei um, Chung uh, helped these Western women when they came over to China in the 1920s, serving as their translator, introducing them to powerful men and women alike, like uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek. And the Western women whom I studied uh, referred to her as the first modern woman in China. Now that sounded improbable, but also enticing. And so I became very interested in her story. Um, There was little about her anywhere in secondary sources, but I began digging around and eventually uh, uh, figured out that she had published an English language memoir in the 1940s, but she published it under her married name of Wei Tao Ming. So I had to make that connection between her name of birth and her married name. Um, And so I ordered it used from the bookstore and uh, began reading it and was sat there with my jaw dropped to the floor the entire time. Her story was remarkable. And among the many, many fascinating um, stories she told was her description of her radical actions as a member of the Chinese delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. I was floored. I'd read a lot about this conference and I'd never heard of any woman who served as an official member of a delegation, let alone a Chinese woman. And I began to wonder, well, if these pacifist feminists from the Wilf and a Chinese nationalist, Mei Chang, were in Paris, in Europe, demanding uh, an opportunity to shape the terms of this peace and to create what they saw as a feminist peace, uh, were there maybe others? And so I started with that question and began digging a little and pulling at the strands and quickly realized, yes, that this singular moment in history, at the end of World War I, at the beginning of a modern liberal internationalist order, was a watershed moment in global feminism for women all over. Um, so I knew at that point that this book needed to be written. I just had to convince myself that I was the person to write it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, The geographic scope terrified me, but the importance of the subject matter inspired me. And so just a little over four years ago, I committed to this project. And with the help of some amazingly generous feminist scholars who specialize in other parts of the world, and with money, as you said, from the National Endowment for the Humanities, I set to work.
1: That's fantastic. That's great, and and it's just I I, I love these stories of um, scholars who are you know we're 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 senior scholars at this point in our careers, um, both of us. But uh, going back to work that we were doing as undergraduates. I mean, I'm I'm currently working on uh, a project on genocide in Indonesia that I did as an undergraduate at UCSC many decades ago at this
2: point. Yeah, I think those topics worm your way into your brain and they yeah, just sit there yeah. until you're ready to take them up.
1: That's 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 a wonderful. So so with this book um piece on our terms, what specifically were you hoping to accomplish? Like what and and also I'm curious, who who's your audience? Who do you who do you want who do you want this book to go to?
2: Wow, um, two separate questions, although they are intertwined. Um, so, first, in terms of what I wanted to accomplish, um, this book intervenes in at least two what are seen as very separate historiographies. On the one hand, the history of the 1919 peace negotiations and the end of World War I and high diplomacy and international relations and on the other hand the development of international feminism and my book calls on the one hand for gendering the history of international relations and at the same time globalizing the histories of early feminism and peacemaking Um, so i'm entering into historiographic debates but i didn't want to write a deeply analytical story for specialists in my mind the um, the actions that women were engaged in were high drama of the kind that can and should capture the imaginations not just of historians and not even just of history students but of a general public and particularly a general public of women's activists who i think are really hungry um, for a deeper understanding of the genealogy that that they're you know coming at the tail end of, and so I deliberately wrote a book that I hope still will speak both to specialists and to a general audience at one and the same time.
1: Yeah, well, well, I, I think so. I mean as I was reading it, one of the things I remarked upon is how engaging and, and really sort of fun. The, your prose is in the book. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good, there's these great stories, especially Sumi Cheng and uh, the adventures she gets into in Paris um, at the same time. It is not um, sort of fluffy pop history. I mean, it is very well-researched, excellent footnotes. I mean, I I was, I'm, I'm, I'm always flipping back and forth to the end notes and, and looking at the sources and it was, you know, a really a wonderful combination of scholar, scholarly endeavor with very, very readable prose, which uh, many of us who write scholarly works don't always accomplish.
2: Thank you. So I appreciate it. Compliment. I worked hard at it. So I, I accept that compliment with yeah. a great deal of pleasure.
1: So you, you mentioned sort of gendering the, uh, this history. Um, what, what do you think was missing from the existing body of historiography on 1919 and the the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles and the other treaties. And and how what what does it mean in your mind to, uh, to gender 1919?
2: So of course the history, the historiography of the Paris Peace Conference goes back to even almost before 1919 in a way, because the diplomatic stakes of what that treaty said and didn't said were considered so weighty. And because Um, both in in popular imagination and also in some scholarly work, it's viewed as the first step towards World War II. Um, So early histories for decades of the Paris Peace Conference uh, were really high diplomatic histories from above and extremely focused on European questions uh, for the most part. Happily, over the last 10 to 20 years, that research has expanded tremendously and my research, I would say, follows on the heels of pathbreaking work by historians like Eris Manella and John Morrow, who have examined, first of all, um, the global nature of the negotiations, of the players involved, and of the ramifications of the um, terms of that peace, And also, particularly how deeply embedded imperialist and racist assumptions were in the world order that was crafted by the great powers at the end of World War I. Um, so these scholars helped cast the Peace Conference as a truly global uh, phenomenon and um, looked at the ramifications of world leaders' failure to act on their promise to build an international system rooted in democracy and self, uh, national self-determination, which is what they had called for. Um, so this early work paints the Peace Conference as a defense of imperialism. My book demonstrates just how hard male statesmen worked to contain feminism and to defend politics as and foreign affairs as a masculine sphere. Now, this was true of the big three, Wilson, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, but it was equally true of many of the colonial nationalist men who came to Paris demanding national self but who were ultimately unwilling to extend right of individual self-determination to country women. Um, so my book uh, really demonstrates not just the importance of women's activism at this moment in 1919, but of the defensive posture of statesmen in defending a patriarchal world order.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Right. Right. So it's, it's it's not, and I, I work with those my like graduate students all the time. The difference between women's history and gendering a history. I mean, yes, there's lots of women's history in here—the experience of these individual women and 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 sort of blocks and groups of women—but also putting a gender perspective on this history. And uh, yeah, and in that regard, the, the book's just just fabulous. Excellent. So, before we really get into the book in 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 depth and start picking apart chapter by chapter, um, was wondering about. Um, What's going on in uh, 1918, 1920? I mean, this is mostly American listeners on the podcast are familiar with. This is um, the the final uh, push for um, um, extending uh, uh, voting rights to women in the United States. But what's going on globally to create this global moment of women's activism? Um,
2: Great question. And uh, there's really kind of several things going on at the same time. I mean, certainly one has to begin by uh, pointing out that momentum for women's global activism had been building for decades. Uh, The rise of literacy among women, increased access to higher education, growing mass print culture, the birth and development of national and international women's organizations, All of these were stimulating conversations about how to address women's oppression, and it was pioneering women, um, not just in the United States, but in many parts of the world, who were pushing this issue um, and bringing it kind of to a breaking point. Um, Then World War I erupted, and that was the game changer. That's the big explanation, really, for why this moment Um, in Europe, in the British Commonwealth, in the United States, women's... Uh, contributions were central to the war effort. They, women believed they had proven their patriotism, their political maturity, their preparation for full citizenship. And um, at the same time that they were experiencing these uh, new. Um, this new sense of confidence, uh, proclamations of global leaders encouraged them on. Um, Woodrow Wilson at the top of the heap, right, uh, announcing America, when America entered the war, the world must be made safe for democracy. Uh, Peace was to be rooted in national self-determination and social justice and these ideas to women were a clear kind of clarion call uh, for them to finally step up and take their place in the global order. So when World War I ended and these leaders convened in Paris at the Peace Conference in 1919, female activists all over the world were determined to hold statesmen to the world. Uh, I'm sorry, to their word. Uh, Dozens came to Paris to do so, others acting out at home, all of them uh, seeking to utilize the unique promise of this moment to advance women's rights.
1: Great, great, yeah. So um, let's get into the book. Uh, It's composed of a prologue and six chapters. Um, Each chapter uh, builds on the next, but also for people thinking about possibly teaching the book individual chapters work, work well on their own. I mean, they're, and that's, I, I love books like that, where things build on each other, but you can also pull things out and, and uh, assign that for students. Um, how, how did you select the the, the various case studies?
2: So um, the book, just to um lay out the framework. The book is, in many respects, a um, a snapshot of a single year in history, right? It's a snapshot of 1919. So all of the case studies in my book highlight women whose political activism was spurred specifically by the end of the war and the peace negotiations. That's the unifying theme, uh, the unifying element uh, among them, uh, whether they were mobilizing, you know, crossing oceans or crossing continents to get to Paris in order to express their wishes and demands or whether they were doing so at home. All of them were speaking to a global audience. All of them were seeking to intervene in diplomatic conversations um, and foreign affairs conversations of the day. Um, so uh, while there are many other case studies that I would have loved to have thrown in, in the end I constrained the book to those that uh, that were most directly inspired by the end of the war and and the the negotiations that had opened in Paris.
1: Okay, that 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 makes sense, and that actually answers a couple of questions I had. Um, you know, I picked up the book, and I'm like, okay. You know, it starts in January 1919. We're going to start with, you know, this horrifying event of Rosa Luxemburg's murder at the hands of the Free Corps, you know, the proto-fascist uh, uh, demobilized soldiers. So I can, I can see why Rosa Luxemburg doesn't quite fit into that. And also, I was wondering, you know, why not the experience of Soviet women who are, you know, it's a civil war at this point, but it's some of the early social and cultural experiments that characterize, I don't know, the good years of the Soviet Union before. Stalin's reaction set in. So that makes sense why that would not really fit into this narrative. Yeah.
2: Yeah, And actually in a couple of the early outlines I had for the book, I had um, kind of traced out a potential chapter on Soviet feminism because the timing works, right? I mean, that period, 1918 to 1920 is exactly, or at late 1917 to 1920 is when, you know, women in the uh, Russia Soviet Union gained the right to vote, gained um, the right to divorce on equal terms with men, um, all kinds of rights and, Also, organized the women's committee of the women's commission, I guess, of the central party committee. Um, So the timing is there, but the impetus wasn't the same, and they weren't in conversation with other global feminists because of the revolution and because they were so isolated uh, politically in that moment in time.
1: Right. Right. Okay. That yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense. So okay, well let's get into the book and and walk us through some of these chapters. So, chapter one is entitled "A New Year in Paris." Women's Rights and the Peace Conference of 1919. It describes a group of women who traveled to Paris to push for women's rights. Tell us a little bit about them, their goals, and their achievements, and and some of the obstacles they faced as well.
2: Absolutely. So the book, um, or the chapters, I should say, flow vaguely chronologically, So, you know, to answer the first question of why start there, these were the women who were already on the ball uh, in January of 1918. And my chapter opens with a French feminist by the name of Marguerite de Witsch-Lumberger, who uh, was the head of the major suffrage society in France at the time and also a member of a, a vice president of the big International Suffrage Association. But she was there on the ground in Paris and knew how rapidly um, the, the negotiations were, were coming together and proceeding and knew that if women were going to get their voice in there, that they were going to have to act quickly. So my chapter one um, examines the conference organized by uh, Schlumberger and French feminists that they ultimately called the Inter-Allied Women's Conference. Importantly, it was inter-allied. It was only women from the victorious nations who were even able to travel uh, to Paris, let alone to um, would, would have been invited by this group at that time. But women from Europe, the United States, from some of the British Commonwealth, uh, uh, New Zealand, and um, South Africa, um, who uh, came to Paris organized in this conference. They first met on February 10th, and they met nonstop for the next two months as they lobbied the peacemakers in their state rooms, out in the streets, wherever they could track them down, demanding representation for women at the peace conference and demanding recognition of women's fundamental political rights, first and foremost, but also economic and social rights in the eventual peace treaty. Um, scholars have known that this conference took place, and you'll see brief references to it occasionally in general histories of the Paris Peace Conference, but very little has been known about it for a very interesting reason, which is that the archives that these women kept, because they knew they were engaged in something very important, these papers that these women uh, kept were seized by the Nazis when they invaded France during World War II. And they were hauled, hauled off to Berlin. And when the Soviet troops arrived in Berlin, they were hauled off to Moscow. And so they've been buried in a uh, um, Russian archive for m- most of the 20th century. They were only repatriated to France relatively recently. And my book is one of the first, if not the first, to delve deeply into them, to understand the incredibly important work that these women did. And um, that, that doesn't get at everything, but I will just say uh, Marguerite de Witt Schlumberger, over the course of the winter and spring of 1919, met face-to-face with Woodrow Wilson on four separate occasions. This is at a period of time when many male nationalist leaders and others couldn't even get a foot in the door. Um, so they were very much riding the tails of these great statesmen. And ultimately, they were able in a small, smaller way than they had hoped to affect the eventual peace.
1: Yeah, I mean, Famously, uh, Ho Chi Minh couldn't get his foot in the door. He presented himself representing the Vietnamese people. But exactly that was not going to be the case. And that's an interesting um, uh, segue into the next chapter. Uh, chapter two is entitled Winter of Our Discontent, Racial Justice and a New World Order. And this adds race to your gendered analysis of 1919. So what was your argument in this chapter? And what's the story you tell here?
2: So um, chapter two takes us into February of 1919 with the staging of the Pan-African Congress. Um, And that is one component of the story that I tell in this chapter. Um, Part of what I seek to demonstrate in this chapter is that first of all it was not just white women who were engaging in political activism in this moment in history and also uh, to borrow a much more contemporary phrase the intersectional nature of many of the women's demands at this moment in 1919. So all of my chapters highlight one or two women This particular chapter looks closely at two African-American women, Mary Church Terrell and Ida Gibbs Hunt. Uh, Both were among the first generation of African-American women able to um, obtain a full college education uh, after the Civil, uh, Civil War and after emancipation. And both of them uh, uh, were extremely active in this moment. They they were college friends. They had actually been roommates at Oberlin College, but their paths had taken very uh, different paths. So this chapter, on the one hand, recounts the experiences of Ida Gibbs Hunt, who had lived with her diplomatic husband in Madagascar, a French colony. Uh, prior to World War I and had lived in France for a number of years upon the outbreak of the war. And um, it looks at her collaboration with the famous African-American intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois in pulling together the Pan-African Congress of 1919, which sought to assert the rights um, of people of color, uh, people of African descent, both in Africa and itself and throughout the diaspora. And I argue in my chapter that uh, Hunt, uh, that the, I, well, I'll just say it. I argue that the Pan-African Congress of 1919 never would have happened without the efforts of Ida Gibbs Hunt, that she was just as intr- instrumental as Du Bois and has been given none of the credit. Um, at the same time, it also looks at Mary Church Terrell, a slightly better known figure in uh, American history, although someone who deserves to be better known. Uh, who came over with these Wilp women, these pacifist women in 1919 and who pushed radical pacifist women to include racial justice in part of their demands and eventually their program for the new um, organization that they founded uh, to include racial justice as an integral component of um, or as linked to sexual justice in a new world order.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: uh, March, and it's, uh, there's a play on words here, is it's March in the parentheses, ing, so March in Cairo or Marching in Cairo, Women's Awakening and the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. And this takes us into the colonial world. So um, how did women's activism in the Islamic culture of Egypt fit into this narrative? Um, and how did their struggle against British rule um, fit into the larger context of the post-World War I settlement?
2: So Egyptian feminists um, were uh, extremely active in and central to what uh, is known in history as the Egyptian Revolution of 1919 or the March Revolution of 1919. Um, So very, very brief background. Um, Egypt, which had been under Western domination for decades, became a full protectorate of the British Empire during World War I. but the British had hinted that when the war was over, that that would pave the way for independence. Um, and so when national male nationalist leaders began demanding that independence almost as soon as the war was over, um, they expected to enter into discussion with the British and the British completely shut it down. And so they moved their demands into the streets. And at that point in time, women became uh, deeply involved in the movement this chapter focuses on a um, a very wealthy uh, Egyptian woman by the name of Hoda Sharawi uh, who was married to a cousin of hers who was at least three decades older than her it was a uh, marriage that she had resented but had come to accept and um uh In this moment of 1919, it was probably the one time she and her husband really joined together around a common cause, uh, the liberation of Egypt. And Hoda Sharawi organized Egyptian women in a big public march out in the streets of Cairo in 1919 demanding liberation for Egypt and demanding simultaneously independence for the country and independence for women um, uh, or the freedom at least to participate fully in this newly independent state and so the chapter follows Sharawi and Egyptian women who were deeply embedded in a nationalist cause in 1919, but who used that shortly, that experience shortly thereafter to launch the first Egyptian feminist party and the most, the strongest and largest um, feminist organization in the Arab world in the interwar decades.
1: Mm-hmm. And, that, and that chapter in Egypt is really quite exciting. The descriptions of the, the demonstrations especially with the more recent history of uh, Tahir Square and and the uh, the Egyptian revolution and the um, the, uh, the Arab Spring so that, that, that I thought that was just a really wonderful gripping chapter uh, the next chapter chapter four um, springtime in Zurich enemies in pursuit of peace and freedom looks at a counter conference of international pacifist uh, feminists so how did the women's International League for peace and freedom the WilP Change uh, or to make, challenge the events in Paris, and what was their their response to the Versailles Treaty and the settlement?
2: So the um, the feminists followed in uh, in Chapter Four that I follow in Chapter Four are again predominantly uh, Western suffragists and feminists. Um, uh, uh, Predominantly white, although Mary Church Terrell uh, is among them, and several other African-American women attend the conference, um, although they aren't actual delegates. Um, but the, what set this group of women apart is that unlike the interallied women in Paris, they believed that a lasting peace and a just peace could not be forged by the victors alone. And so they insisted on meeting in Zurich, which was neutral ground, so that former enemies could come together. And so women from England and the United States. Eventually, France and then Germany and Austria met together. They were one, uh, aside from um, some of the most radical left, they were among the very first organization to manage to bring former enemies together around a common table at the end of World War I. They issued a strident um, condemnation of the Versailles Treaty, which they saw as a victor's peace. They demanded an immediate end to the embargo, the food embargo on Central Europe that was causing um, uh, hunger and in some cases outright famine. And they sought, far more than the inner allied women, sought to uh, demand a new world order that was built not just on the terms of individual freedom and justice, but the equitable distribution of resources around the world.
1: Yeah. Um. And then chapter five, uh, Mayflowers in China, The Feminist Origins of Chinese Nationalism. This focuses on on Mei Cheng. And she was China's first female lawyer and judge, and also the only female delegate to the, uh, to the, uh, the Paris Peace Conference. So what did she bring to Paris in 1919? And uh, more generally, why was it important for you to include China in this history um, centered around the Paris Peace Conference?
2: So in in related but different ways than Egypt, uh, China was at kind of a critical moment in its own national development in um, this moment of World War I. Uh, just prior to the war, uh, revolutionary nationalists revolutionaries had finally toppled, toppled, excuse me, the final, uh, the Qing Empire and had struggled to establish a republic that was on barely even shaky grounds when World War I broke out. Um, So China was trying to solidify itself as an independent republic and also regain um, the independence, the economic independence and global stature that it had largely lost in the period of high imperialism in the 19th century. In this process of modernization um, and uh, this determined effort to re-establish Chinese sovereignty, radicals. seriously contemplated and, and wrote about the importance of women's liberation as a, as a mechanism of national regeneration. Su Me Chung, uh, her life spans the cusp of the old Qing Empire and the new revolution and republic that followed. I won't get into detail uh, now because um, her story could could eat up the rest of our time alone, but um, after being born into a very wealthy, very, very wealthy family, she uh rejected tradition. She joined uh, Sun Yat-sen in the revolution. She was a bomb smuggler. She was a would-be assassin. Her family eventually packed her off to Paris to get her out of harm's way, where she studied constitutional law at the Sorbonne. Um, she was in favor of China joining on the side of the Allies in World War I in part because she th- believed in, in democracy and the cause that they purported to stand for. And um, because of her unique set of skills and circumstances, when the time came, the southern government in China appointed her as a member of the Chinese delegation specifically responsible for communicating with both Western and Chinese media and for representing Chinese women at the peace conference.
1: Great and in in chapter six, Autumn on the Potomac, Women Workers and the Quest for Social Justice, this brings in a discussion of labor activism. Um, Tell us about the women you profile here and their contributions and I'm, I'm curious about how the women in this chapter Challenge some of the class and racial structures of the world in 1919.
2: So, this final substantive chapter brings us up to the autumn of 1919, which is uh, when uh, this organization born out of the peace negotiations, the International Labor Organization, which still exists today, to um, uh, kind of monitor and help structure. Uh, labor relations around the world Um, this is when it first met in washington dc in uh, in uh, october november of 1919 this chapter profiles two female activists on both sides of the atlantic so on the one hand a french activist a french labor activist by the name of jean bouvier who um, knew a childhood of extreme poverty had to help support her family as like a 13 year old working in the silk mills around lyon but who became a um, dedicated labor activist and also, kind of rare, spanned um, the divide between labor activism and feminism. And um, so she, uh, among others, helped push an agenda of economic rights and particularly the rights of women workers at the Peace Conference. Um, She was eventually joined, she and others were joined by two American women who'd been sent over to Europe by the Women's Trade Union League of America, one of whom was a woman by the name of Rose Schneiderman. a Russian Jewish immigrant who had also um, known desperate poverty in the garment trade of the Lower East Side, who'd become an important labor organizer. And so both in Paris at the Peace Conference and then in Washington, D.C., these women um, worked together and with others in order to try and uh, encourage global leaders to see the well-being of workers generally and particularly women workers as essential to creating the terms of stability and um, international peace. And I look at particularly at their efforts to secure a convention on paid maternity leave and also um, the, to uh, regulate the conditions of women's work that emerged out of this 1919 ILO conference.
1: Yeah, and then in the the conclusion of the book um you actually uh, uh, uh there's a surprise appearance by someone who I was not expecting uh Benito Mussolini addressing uh, an international women's con uh conference in Rome and is I think it's in 1923 22 Correct. 23 23 22. um why did you end with that and with the figure of Mussolini who it was so striking and so depressing to encounter after these various sort of uplifting optimistic stories.
2: So, um, the epilogue, as you said, leaps ahead, uh, for years and takes up the question of legacies, you know, what did all this activism amount to? And, um, I wanted to show two things to some degree in the chapter. One is that these individual stories, which, as you said, kind of overlap lightly as as we work our way through the chapter but are very much independent in many respects, um, do and did come together. And many of these women, most of the women I discuss in my book, um, attended this conference uh, of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance in Rome in 1923. So on the one hand, I wanted to show um, uh, the ways in which global feminism, even though battles and and organizations remained separate and fought separate battles, also continually interacted, interlaced, and sought um, the groundwork on which women from very differing backgrounds and parts of the world could organize together to advance women's rights. The second thing, though, that I show, because this did take place in Rome um, after uh, the march on Rome and after Mussolini's fascist party came to power, was the incredibly difficult ro- uh, road that laid ahead. And the fact that while women gained uh, managed to achieve uh, r- remarkable results, given what they were up against in 1919, whether it was you know, the full um, entrance of women into the League of Nations, an incredibly progressive convention on uh, paid maternity leave. They had made real and tangible accomplishments. By the same token, the essence of the global order that had been preserved was still a patriarchal one, and it was one that sadly, among other things, was going to give rise to uh, fascism in Europe and militarism and imperialism in Japan and Ultimately, uh, uh, not it, it, the 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 vision that women had for peaceful world order was put off for many decades, and in many respects, we're still fighting for it today.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so, I mean, this book introduces so many amazing women, um, some famous and some that I don't know. We we could uh, quote Trotsky and say that you rescued them from the dustbin of history, at least for you know probably American readers. Uh, and American readers are going to know Jane Adams, um, but may not recognize some of the other uh, figures, such as Su Chang from China or uh, Huda Shaari from uh, from Egypt. Who personally? Who is your favorite Mona? Who who who's who's who are your uh, heroines from uh, this book? Like who who would you want to hang out with and have coffee with?
2: So I feel like to some degree you're asking me who was my favorite child, which is, you know, never, <laughs> never a terribly fair question, but I actually do have a, an answer to this question. And, um, and I, I think I've probably already given away my hand. Uh, Sumei Chung uh, among the group uh, is the one, she's the one who inspired me in the end to feel as though I had to write this book. And her story is absolutely mind blowing um I've only touched on the tip of it here you know after um after really uh i would say becoming the key player in determining whether or not China was willing to sign the paris the, the Versailles treaty at all uh, she went on as you as you mentioned to become the um, first judge and uh, female judge and lawyer in china right, but, but it, I'm, I'm
1: sorry Mona. I need to interrupt so did China sign the, the treaty?
2: <laughs> I think you're going to have to read my book if you don't know already. <laughs> um, but I will just say that the the determining event as to whether or not it happened involves Sumei Chung holding up a Chinese delegate in a garden in a Parisian suburb with a rosebush gun. And if that doesn't entice you to read my book, I don't know what will.
1: It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing story. And the, uh, the afterlife of that, um, that uh, that rosewood gun is um, mm-hmm. is great too. I, I I love that chapter.
2: Thank you. I love that chapter too. And um, yeah, so she but her story is uh, extraordinary. She went on not only um, to become a practicing lawyer, she was appointed by Chiang Kai-shek to help shape the first modern civil code in China. And so it's in no small part due to her efforts, as well as some very feminist men who worked by her side, that women gained nearly full equality in marriage and and, uh, political rights at the time of the nationalist government in the 20s and 30s. And part of the reason I'm so committed to her story is that she's been utterly lost to history, not just in the United States, um, and she, she died in Los Angeles. She has a close connection to the United States as well, um, but also in China. And that's because while Sumay Cheng was a radical and a revolutionary and a nationalist, she was not a communist. And so after 1949, um, her, her life story and the important role that she played in helping secure Chinese women's rights has been, I would say, deliberately forgotten
1: by the by the party
2: by the party yes yeah.
1: and the official yeah. official narrative of the people's Republic of china and she was was she also dean of the law school in uh, the university of shanghai
2: it' yeah the law school in shanghai she was um she was the head of that for a number of years in the twenties I mean, and thirties
1: j- just a remarkable figure she
2: um she uh, she eventually ended up marrying a man whom she met in law a Chinese man whom she met in law school in Paris by the name of Wei Tao Ming, who was a powerhouse unto himself as well. And he uh, became the ambassador to the United States from China in the midst of World War II. And so she moved to D.C. as his wife. And when the Washington Post and other American newspapers came to interview her expecting to find some dainty, delicate, Chinese wife, you know, domestic wife, she launched into her life story, and they just flipped out and wrote these amazing articles, kind of rediscovering her in that moment.
1: Yeah, And one of the things that you bring out is the way that she uh, oftentimes very consciously uh, challenges Western Orientalist stereotypes uh, about uh, the non-European, non-American world. And um, I th- the way you wove that into the text was just just fabulous. So, uh, um, speaking of challenges, um, so the early women's um, rights movement in the United States is often criticized for prioritizing the concerns of white and well-off women at the to the exclusion of women of color and poor women. It's inter- interesting to note that some of the American women who actively pushed for women's rights agenda in Paris 1919 were African American civil rights activists and working-class trade union activists, women like Ida Gibbs-Hunt and Rose uh, Schneiderman. Is it time for us to rethink our understanding of the American women's movement?
2: Absolutely. And I do think that um, uh, women's historians and feminist scholars in the United States are, are very actively engaged in this process right now. It's come out um, in a lot of the scholarship that's been released around this 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment in the United States, and the scholarship has highlighted both the diversity of female participants in the battle for suffrage, African American women, labor women, other minority women who've long been at the heart of this movement, even though they haven't been memorialized, um, and their histories haven't been told uh, fully um, up until very recently. but. What this new scholarship and what I hope mine also helps highlight is that um, racial equality and economic justice were tied to this push for women's rights from very early on, and they were linked to broader global concerns and global trends, including the fight against imperialism, a push for global workplace standards enforceable by a world government. Um, One of the kind of... Lectures that I've been given giving about my book uh, in this anniversary year. I've titled the global history of the 19th amendment I'm trying to explain to American audiences why it is that some Americans particularly those on the fringes of the movement of the American movement, whether um, racial minorities or uh, working class chose to go to Europe just as the push for the vote was reaching its climax um, and also the degree to which global events and global pressures help push the 19th Amendment across the finish line in the United States.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So We've been going on for a bit, and I will have a few more questions before we wrap up, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, and you said a few words in this previously, but um, can you tell us a bit more about the archival hunt? Um, i i it's i think it's just wonderful that you initially started this research as an undergraduate working in the woolf archives and um the uh you mentioned the story of the um the archives that are taken to to paris so can you tell us a bit about um how you found the sources around the world for uh for this book
2: Sure. So in total, I, I, I kind of lose track, but I think in total I visited about 14 or 15 different archives and libraries in four different countries, um, in the United States, the United Kingdom, Belgium, and France. Um, and uh, many, some of those archives are organizational records from different um, women's organizations that emerged out of this, this effort. Others were personal papers of women involved, um, uh, particularly at this moment in time. Um, You know, archival work is my favorite part of being a historian. I think it is for many of us, right? It's when we get to pretend that we're detectives and follow one lead from one place to the next, um, but for example, just to put together that first chapter about the inner allied women's movement, the papers, the letters back and forth, the minutes from various meetings were scattered between archives in London, Manchester, Angers, France, and Paris. And it wasn't until I had collected the whole bunch of them that I could begin not only to see what somebody was saying, but what somebody responded and put that whole story together.
1: That's, that's um, fascinating. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, if I can just jump right in and uh-huh. maybe kind of um, add uh, an important issue, which is the question of language—the language of the documents we're in—because, of course, um, it's perhaps notable that I didn't travel to China and I didn't travel to Cairo or elsewhere in Egypt to do this research. And while my French is fairly fluent and my German is passable, and I hear my English is okay, um, I don't—I don't have Chinese or Arabic language skills, and that was a real, was and is a challenge and um, you know I'll just say right off the bat, I hope that scholars who have those skills will start from my research and build from them um, the parts of the stories that I couldn't fill in. Um, but I will say I was aided uh, for better or for worse by the fact that in the early 20th century Egyptian women, um, elite Egyptian women who were able to obtain an education largely through private tutors uh, were often denied the opportunity to learn much more than rudimentary Arabic. It was not considered appropriate for a woman. So many of them learned French as a written language better than they learned Arabic. And in fact, the first um, feminist journal uh, created by Egyptian women was published in French and not in Arabic and sits in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And so, um, I was able to access uh, those papers. Shirawi's memoir, um, which she did write in Arabic toward the end of her life, has been translated into English by the amazing feminist scholar, uh, scholar Margot Bedron. Um, Chinese sources, um, obviously, Mei Chung was followed in the West, and so I could follow her trace through Europe and the United States. Um, but when it came both to China to, Um, Cheng's activism in China, and also to the broader May 4th movement and women's role in it, which is part of the setting for that chapter in China, I depended on the work of Chinese uh, scholars, particularly uh, Wang Zheng's oral histories with women from the May 4th era, and um, Louise Edwards' pathbreaking archival work on Chinese suffrage, and Louise was actually kind enough to dig up and translate synopses of Chinese newspapers for me so that I was able to incorporate that into my analysis
1: yeah that's a it speaks speaks to that uh some of the collaborative nature of your research and you you talk about this in the acknowledgements and i know you've got a a brain trust at our uh at our home institution that really helped you as well that's um and it, i think that's such an important thing to keep in mind as those of us who are trained in national histories try to do global or world history projects or transnational um and um again the collaborative effort really uh really speaks to the the strength of your work. Yeah, um,
2: if I can just jump in, yeah. I do just want to say that it's really only due to the generosity of a number of scholars, um, Karen Offen, uh Dorothy Sue Coble, Margot mm-hmm. Badron, and others that I was able to uh, to to write this project at all.
1: Yeah, great, great. I think that it also speaks to the strength of the field. Um and, and I know Karen's work very well, and she's she's just such a powerhouse. Um, So as we start to wrap up, can you suggest two books related to Peace on Our Terms that you think listeners should read?
2: Absolutely. Um, Well, actually, the problem is to just recommend two, right? But um, um, I will say one kind of entire geographic region of the world that gets shortchanged in my book is Latin America. And this isn't by design. It's because Latin American nations, with a small exception of Brazil, didn't fight in World War I. They were sidelined uh, during the peace negotiations. So feminists in Central and South America were not mobilized by the international events of 1919 in the same way or the same degree as other women. Um, that said, and my epilogue hints at this Uh, In the interwar decades, Latin American feminists came to play an outsized role in advancing regional and global women's rights. And so Catherine Marino's recent and now prize-winning book, uh, Feminism for the Americas, The Making of an International Human Rights Movement, does an absolutely spectacular job of recounting and analyzing this history. And I kind of, I don't know if she'd agree, I kind of see it as almost a sequel to my own work. And so I would highly recommend that.
1: Could you say the, the the name and the title one more time? Catherine sure. Marino? So
2: Catherine Marino, she's mm-hmm. a historian down at UCLA, and her book is titled Feminism for the Americas, the Making of an International Human Rights Movement. Um, and it just came out last year. Um, if I had to direct readers to just one other book, I think I'd want to send them to a primary source. I think I want them to hear about this history in the words of the women who lived it. Um, and so once again, I'm gonna just send, uh, send listeners to Sumay Me Chung's memoir. It's mm-hmm. titled, My Revolutionary Years. It's published under her married name. So the author is listed as Madam Wei Tao Ming. And it's out of print, but it is available. And um, uh, everyone, everyone should read that memoir at some
1: point in their lives yeah based on the the bits in your uh, in your book it just sounds absolutely fascinating so w- what are you working on now and um what can we hope to see from you next
2: so i mean at this exact moment um i I'm still kind of, you know, deeply in, in, in this book. I've been, um, at least up until very recently, uh, giving public lectures related to the nineteenth, uh, the um, commemoration of the nineteenth amendment. Sweet.
1: Of course, we we are recording this in the uh, the depths of uh, COVID nineteen shelter at home uh, policies in California. So, a really unfortunate time <laughs> to have a number of book talks scheduled, and I and I feel for you.
2: Exactly. So it's been hard, but I, um, uh, but I've been, you know, trying to get word out uh, about this book as best I can. Um, I have a couple of, you know, kind of essays and forthcoming collections about global feminism and global democracy, seeking to summarize some of the findings from this book for um, for uh, particularly academic audiences. Um, other than that, in terms of what you might see from me next, this is you know, very, very tentative at this point in time. But I will say there's a woman whose name gets brushed by just once very briefly, barely plays a role in this particular book at all. Um, But she's a French feminist. She was the heir to the Veuve Clicquot Champagne fortune, one of the wealthiest women in France. She was the first woman to get a driver's license. She was the first woman to get a speeding ticket. (laughs) She was a champion of big game hunting as a female sport. She was a Royalist turned into a Republican and feminist who befriended the radical communard Louise Michel. And before the end of her life, she was a red cross nurse during world war one. And I have to say her story is calling out to me right now.
1: Wow. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. (laughs) I mean, so, um, Dr. Siegel, Mona, my friend, my colleague, thank you so much. Uh, This was a great conversation. This is a fabulous book, and um, congratulations on this achievement.
2: Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure to talk about it with you,
1: Mike. So I'm Michael Vann, and this has been a, a conversation with Mona Siegel, author of Peace on Our Terms, The Global Battle for Women's Rights After the First World War. This has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.